And it's a joy to be here with you. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And um, I I would like to start off by um, making a comment about something that's taken place in the life of our church that you contributed to, and I'm very grateful for your participation in it. Uh, Back in um, October, November, we conducted a church survey to help us know a little bit more about ourselves, uh, help us with our identity, and... um, We've received some of the reports back, and over the course of the next several weeks, you'll hear a little bit more about some of the results that were in there. But I just wanted to make a comment about um, two of the pieces of information that came out of that survey. I got a chance to look at it this last week, and um, we thank you for those who participated. We had quite a few who did. It was a rather long survey, and thank you for wading through it. Um, one of the questions was this. It was something to the effect of, I believe that there is a good fit or match between the pastor and our church. And the response to that was that 97% of you who responded said that you agreed with that statement. That's unbelievable, and thank you. I'd like to... going to applaud for you. I, that's not exactly how I envision that moment going, but I, I want to I comment about that in just a second, about um, one of my takes out of that, one of my perspectives on that. The second was a question that came right after it, and it was, um, this is a place um, where I would be happy to bring my unchurched family and friends. And 93% of you who responded said, yes, I love that. I love this place. This is a place where I'm proud to bring my family and friends. I've told you several times that even if I wasn't the pastor of this place, I would like to attend this church which is not necessarily true for some fellow pastors I know in other locations. They would like to attend this church, not the one that they're at. This is a wonderful place for many reasons, but part of it has to do with a posture that I believe you take. And so I want to make an illustration. It'll take me a few moments to get to where this is going. And, and, and I might add, I know that this right now, to a great extent, is for people who have been part of this church for a period of time, and we have several that are guests this morning, and maybe this is your first time here, and you're trying to figure out, do I even want to come back to this place? And uh, bear with me for a few moments as I talk a little bit about what I believe is part of the characteristic of, uh, or a primary characteristic of this place, um, mostly to those who have been here for a while. But I hope those of you that might be guests, um, you will find in some of these comments something that resonates with you. This is also not a complete diversion from the message. We're going to get into Isaiah 9, Matthew 4, and I hope you'll see how some of this ties together in what I believe is important in who we are and what we study in that passage. So I want to bring up my... My Trader Joe's bag, apparently. I didn't know that that was the one I was bringing here. 
And my wonderful leopard um, uh, table runner, whatever you call that. I have a number of containers here. They come in a variety of shapes and sizes. They uh, serve different functions in many ways, but in other ways, they serve all the same function. They hold things, they contain things. But one of the things that's amazing to me, and, and, and this has been something that periodically, I mean, it's nothing I dwell on, but occurs to me every once in a while when you get amazed at the way in which God created things. And I am amazed at the versatility of the hands that we have that with all of these variety of shapes and sizes, my hand can perfectly wrap around and work marvelously well at undoing any one of these. And one of the principles that you learn in biology, which at initial hearing sounds a little counterintuitive, but it's not, and that is that as versatile as the hand is, it is one of the least specialized components of the human body. When something is specialized, it serves a limited purpose, maybe one purpose only. One of the most specialized parts of our body is the big toe. It basically helps with balance, and we usually don't even notice that it's doing that except right in this moment as I'm thinking about it and leaning forward and it keeps me in balance. But it's incredibly specialized because it doesn't do much more than that. I mean, you can adorn it with whatever you would like to adorn it with, but in terms of functionality, it's pretty specialized. Not the hand. The hand's incredibly unspecialized and incredibly versatile. And in that versatility, it has the ability to do so many different things and bring about new learnings and possibilities because it has the possibility of shifting and adapting to so many different circumstances. So if I could take that for a moment and propose that for me that's a marvelous metaphor for the church. And I would contend that much like there are so many different shapes and ways and looks of these things, there are thousands of men and women who could be a great fit for this place. I am convinced that it is your ability to adapt and wrap around and adjust to my quirks, my sharp edges, my odd approaches to some things, being too poignant when you wish I was less, not being direct enough when you wish I'd be more, and you as a church wrap around and embrace and hold me in absolutely incredible ways. So to say this is an amazing fit is, I think, from my perspective, more of a testament to an incredible church who holds me in amazing ways. 
And my prayer and hope is that everyone who comes through the doors that lead into this place feel that same amazing adaptation. Whether it's someone who comes in with literal or figurative special needs. Someone who comes in with a different perspective, a different history of experience, a different cultural upbringing, a different way of looking at the world, that we as a church find ourselves willing to take who we are and shift our way so that we can wrap around people, learn what they have to teach us, And in adapting, not letting go of truth that we believe is at the core of who we are, but finding ourselves holding people in the way they need to be held, not the way we need to hold. That in that moment, we've been what God has called us to be. And so I want to say thank you and don't stop. Don't ever stop. Because it's in doing that that I think we both grow. We both learn. We both discover new ways of being who God created us to be. To require that everyone steps into my way of thinking, my way of being, my way of perceiving, does not so much destroy the other person, though it may create some hurt and pain, but it destroys my opportunity to learn and grow. It it brings to a halt my ability to be molded by the Spirit as the Spirit works through you. And so, knowing full well that there are thousands of others who could be here, thank you for letting me be here, for being the kind of church that embraces in those kinds of ways. With that in mind, I want to take us into this passage of Scripture, Isaiah 9, Matthew chapter 6. You heard it read. Thank you, Stephanie, for reading it. It it is uh, a wonderful example of how our Old Testament and New Testament tie together, how they are intimately connected and speak to one another and help us to understand God's truth for our life's journey. You also know from, if you've been here very much at all, how important context is to me. And so to speak about what the context is for both of these passages, because they are spoken hundreds of years apart, and yet they speak to a common truth. The context of the Isaiah passage is really difficult to identify because it's not really easy to determine exactly when Isaiah 9 might have been written. Based on what we read in this passage and in the surrounding passages, there is a strong, strong possibility that it was written during a time when the northern kingdom had had been overtaken by the Assyrians. And the southern kingdom was in the shadow of what had just happened. The notion that we're next... They've taken over the northern kingdom. Certainly, we're next on their agenda of expansion. 
And I want to pause for a moment. What's the difference between the northern and southern kingdom? You can learn a little bit about it if you go to 1 Kings chapter 11 and chapter 12. And there you'll see what happened at the end of the first three kings who reigned over the people of Israel. Saul, then David, then Solomon. At the end of Solomon's reign, God was not particularly pleased with some of the things that Solomon had done. And at the end of Solomon's journey, there was a man who had been under Solomon's authority by the name of Jeroboam. He had been in charge of a major building project. He was trusted in many ways. But Solomon realized that God had spoken through a prophet and had said to Jeroboam that he was displeased with Solomon and he was going to give Jeroboam ten of the tribes of Israel as his kingdom. Well, Solomon wasn't pleased with uh, Jeroboam in a variety of ways. Jeroboam flew to the south for a period of time. As Solomon's life came to an end, his son Rehoboam assumed he was going to take over leadership. And Jeroboam returned. And the kingdom split. And ten tribes comprised the northern kingdom under the rule of Jeroboam, and two tribes the southern kingdom under Rehoboam. Jerusalem being part of the southern kingdom, Galilee as we know it today being part of the northern kingdom. The Assyrians came down many, many years later, in part a result of leadership not following God very closely in the northern kingdom. And the Assyrians overtook and destroyed, pummeled, I mean incredibly uh, destructive toward both things and people, this northern kingdom. And so this area, living in the dark shadows of the Assyrian rule, and the southern kingdom living in the shadow of that happening, wondering with great anxiety, are we next? This is our best guess of when this passage was written by Isaiah. As he says, those who are living in the shadow of death have seen a great light. Those in darkness, the light is coming, has come. Speaks about a ruler rising up. It is a powerful message of hope to those who are living in the midst of very little hope. We go to Matthew chapter 4. And we see Jesus, who has come out of baptism in his time in the wilderness, and then heads back up to Galilee, which is the northern kingdom area, though this is hundreds and hundreds of years later, and begins to preach the good news, to heal the sick, and to teach the people. So this is the setting in which Matthew writes... In the land of Zebulon and Naphtali, a quote directly out of Isaiah, a light has come, 
Those living in darkness have seen a great light. And it is attributed in this passage in Matthew to Jesus. Zebulon and Nephthali, I heard that all the time growing up, had no idea what that meant where it was. Those are two of the tribes of Israel. And the tribes divided up into other different areas to live, and they really comprised the area that was on the western banks of the Sea of Galilee. It's the area where Jesus lived for quite a period of time and where he went to Capernaum to live out a good portion of his ministry in preaching and teaching and healing. And so much of Jesus' ministry took place in Zebulon and Ephali, that area. So, is that significant to us at all? I, I really believe that place is important. Location makes a difference. I can say something in one location and it be received without any defenses going up. I can say the exact same wording in another place and everybody's defenses go up and the reaction is very different. You can yell out one phrase in a particular political rally and it be cheered, and you can yell out the exact same phrase in another political rally, and you'd be taken out of the political rally. It, it, place matters. What you say and what you do, it makes a difference. And I think that the story that Matthew is telling about Jesus' journey, place makes a big difference. Jesus went down to Judah, the area of the southern kingdom, where he was baptized by John in the River Jordan. And then he left that place and went into the wilderness to be tempted. At the end of temptation, remember, he is in the seatbed of spirituality near the city of Jerusalem, where everything religious emanates from in the Jewish tradition. The northern kingdom... Well, it's just that, the northern area, not the city of Jerusalem, not Galilee, certainly not Nazareth. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus leaves the area of Judah and goes to the northern kingdom area to begin to proclaim the good news. This is a family division that has gone on a long time. You know the kind of family divisions we don't talk about? The, the rifts, the, the, the dynamics that you hope no guest ever sees, and if they do, you certainly don't want to talk about it. This is family division. And Jesus launches in his journey, and begins the process of building bridges across that rift. We know he returns to Jerusalem. The two get tied together in his journeys over and over again. It seems to me that it is not completely unfair to say a journey into the shadow conversations of Jewish history 
as Jesus speaks about the good news. I don't know how you feel about the shadows. The, the title of this message is Walking in the Shadows. It is true that Scripture speaks about in 1 John chapter 1 that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. In fact, it makes it even stronger by saying if we claim that we are walking in the light and that somehow we have fellowship with God but we're actually in the darkness, we're just lying to ourselves and we don't live by the truth. There is this imagery, particularly in John, that calls us toward the light of God. But the very, very next verse in that passage also says, if we claim we have no sin, then we're lying, and we're really not living into the truth. We're called to confess those places. And in that confession, it does something about our spiritual journey. If we go back to the beginning of creation, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, and it was void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. God's presence in the midst of that darkness described at the time of creation. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God separated the light from the darkness, and the light he called day, and the darkness he called night. And the evening and the morning was the first day. It doesn't say, and God created light, and there was never any darkness again. It doesn't say, and God created light, and all of a sudden, all shadows were gone. It simply says that he separated the two. And it doesn't say that God somehow divorced himself of some portion of creation, God's Spirit moves upon the face of the waters in the midst of those shadow places as well. In fact, Scripture tells us that God offers to us treasures out of the darkness. So what do we do with that? Some contended that Jesus' ministry began with his first miracle at the marriage in Cana. And that's certainly the first miracle. I'm not sure we mark it real well as the beginning of God's ministry. Some speak about his first teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, when he went up on the hillside just beside the Sea of Galilee and began to preach to the people. Certainly, there is something to be said about the power of the Spirit that came and descended him on him like a dove in the River Jordan as he was baptized by John the Baptist. And there the Father says, expresses his pleasure over this being his Son. I would hate for us to miss the power of the wilderness in Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus goes into the wilderness and wrestles with so many things. The wilderness itself, what a name for that being in the shadows. That being a place that we certainly don't wish upon anyone, and yet Jesus went there 
and wrestled with some of the deepest issues of life and found the Father's sustenance. It was out of that that Jesus proclaims over and over again, I do nothing but what I see the Father having done it. Where did Jesus learn that? Certainly over a lifetime, but it's in the midst of the wilderness moments that Jesus discovers things that I think maybe cannot be found any place other than in the wilderness, in the shadows, in the darkness that sometimes spills into our life. I sometimes in fight resist other people and the things that they say as much as I fight and resist things that are inside of me. Sometimes it is the darkness of the outer circumstances that affects how I feel inwardly. But it's equally true that sometimes it's the wrestling and shadows in me that affect how I see everything outside of me. God's presence is there in both of those and invites us in many ways to walk through those places. My wrestling with others sometimes is this great challenge to try and get them to see the way I think, the way I view things. Sometimes my posture is that the other person is really living in the shadows and I need to get them out of that because their perspective, their, their viewpoint is often destructive and, and they just need a little more of my light that I can shed on them. That outward wrestling is sometimes a great metaphor for inward wrestling. I'd like to give you a visual that for me was given, I don't know, 25, at least 25 years ago. And I've remembered it since then. I sometimes have forgotten it when I most needed it, but it comes back to me, fortunately. And so to kind of demonstrate that, I'm going to ask Kyle Sutter to come up and join me. I've asked him to help me on this. Kyle is going to represent for me both that kind of opposite view of others, but it also represents the wrestling that sometimes occurs within and my resistance to stepping into those places. Hi, Kyle. Really glad you're here. <laughs> I love your name tag, which says John Cena. That's right. I am John Cena. Yeah, I think there's only 5% of the population out here who might know who John Cena is. So anyway, John, glad to have you here. My wrestling partner, who I fight against often, and often don't win, sometimes go to a draw, but this is what it often looks like when I start trying to draw somebody into my perspective, my way of thinking, my certainty of how I understand the world. I grab hold of the opposite and I decide, hey, it's, it's this way. No, 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 you need to understand me. No, 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 it's, it's this way that you need to come up and, no, 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 it's over here. Hey, come on. Hey. 
The forces that I didn't even know were in existence in terms of resistance came to life. Before I started pulling, I didn't even know that there was that much energy in the opposite direction. But when I start pulling, oh my goodness, I had no idea what was there. Truth is, this is actually a great depiction of marriage relationships. <laughs> when you start bringing to light some of those differences and the resistance, wow, where did that come from? I had no idea. And I said, put your arm around your wife in that moment. That was a good call. In the first service, when I made that statement, my wife yelled, Amen, and that was a great moment for me. That resistance comes to life when you start the wrestling. There are many other ways to approach issues like that. But one of the ways that you can begin to change that posture, and I'm not saying that it's easy, but it really begins to make a huge difference, both outwardly and inwardly, is to simply present an invitation to the other side that says, I'm actually interested in knowing your perspective. I'm actually interested in trying to see how you see. There might be a chance at some point in the future that because of that defense or offense, my guard being dropped a little bit, that that side of the argument might say the same thing to me. There might still be the embrace, there might still be the posture, but the invitation that says, actually I'd really like to see from your perspective what it is you're getting at, and he pulls me across, and in so doing we both see in a new way, in a new light, from a new perspective. Thanks, Kyle. I appreciate that. The, it is, in some ways, the willingness to adjust around something that was not exactly the shape that I thought it was. To have enough flexibility, enough willingness to consider something new and different that I've never quite done before and learn how I might adapt myself to become a little bit more the way God might have intended me to be because I am learning a little bit more about how God has created others to be. This notion of there's a light that's shined into the darkness it says very clearly that it's shining onto people who are dwelling in the shadows. And it's not so much that they have refused to step into the light, but it is simply true about life that shadows sometimes overtake. They move into our lives in a variety of ways, circumstances that impose themselves on us, fears that rise up from within, anxiety that we don't have a great way of explaining. 
though we might try and put words to it. Shifting sand, things that we thought were rock solid, all of a sudden begin to float away and we ask really hard questions, but they are questions we would have never asked had something like that never floated away. There are questions that get asked in the shadows that never get asked in the light. But here's the power of the good news. And it is that God has never left us. God is as present in those places as the others. It's not always easy to sense God's presence. It's not always easy to know where God's at work. I I can't always, in the dim shadows, see the fingerprints that God's leaving. But God's always present. And in those moments, if we are open to how God might lead, we will learn things that will forever change our future. As Jesus in the wilderness laid down anchor points that forever identified his ministry. I don't think we should ever push away from the light. But I think it's really important to always acknowledge the shadows that invade our journey. And know that it's very possible that the invasion of the shadows is not intended for our destruction, but could very well be the very thing intended for our growth. To find grace in those places is to make a discovery that lasts in eternity. It is a taste of heaven. We long for all there is of God, but it's so difficult to receive all there is of God until we have invited God to receive all of who we are. And that includes the day as well as the night, the light as well as the shadow, the difficulties as well as the hope and expectations. It is the battle without and the battle within. It is all of who we are confessionally saying, okay, God, here it is, all of it. I am the land of Nephthali and Zebulon. Will you please walk into the land that I occupy and allow these parts of my journey to not be so overwhelmed by the shadow of the Assyrians or in Jesus' time, so swamped by the pressure of the Romans, but instead can I keep myself focused on your light so that while I live in the shadows, even the shadow of death, 
Nothing causes me to be afraid. I fear no evil, for thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they protect me. You've prepared a table before me. In the presence of all of these that would be called my enemies, anointed my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy are part of my journey, all of my life, and all of eternity. So wherever you're walking this morning, mountain or valley, light or shadow, God's not disappeared. Learn where you're at, the things that God can only teach where you're at right now, and allow our lives collectively to be the kind of people that are not fighting and resisting at every turn, but invite others and ourselves to step into a new place with a new perspective and wrap ourselves around the strange nuances of what it means to be exactly where we are in this place and to hold each other with grace and love, compassion, and a posture of being molded ourselves into the character of Christ. Father in heaven, I thank you and praise your name for a promise. The promise that I don't have to strive for getting out of the place I'm at. I, I don't have to earn my way into light. I don't have to pretend that there aren't shadows both within and without. Quite in contrast, Lord, I, I think you simply call me to confess that. <laughs> To simply acknowledge it. To acknowledge who I am in all of its aspects and the circumstances in which I find myself and all of its nuances. And, and Lord, not to accept being less than who I am, but to accept all of who I am. And to find some way to assimilate or integrate all of those pieces of my journey in ways that honor you and, and somehow help me to be more like I could be. So for all of us, Lord, we bring to you our shadows. For many of us, the places where we've been dwelling for quite some time and didn't really know that you were present. In fact, Lord, sometimes the shadows actually feel safer than the light. But Lord, there's also mixed in there fear and apprehension and uncertainty 
sometimes despair and pain. We long to know that you are present there. We want to find in you our hiding place. We want you to be our refuge. In some ways to wait out the storm, but maybe, Lord, it's to dwell while the storm happens and to watch out of the storm to come the blossoms and the new birth and the grace and the restoration and the renewal. So this morning, Lord, in desiring to have all of you, we ask that you would help us to have the courage to give you all of us. <laughs> because a good portion of our journey is in the nighttime, is in the shadows. Be so present, Lord. And wherever we are right now, may we just have a taste of your peace. Oh, that would be heaven. Sweet honey of grace. among us, move into us, meet us right where we're at, Lord, thank you.